0: Oops, I don't even have a packet today. Okay. Welcome to class number six. This is the final class of this lesson. You're all supposed to go. Ah. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's right. When does the next class? Start? The next series of classes begins after Passover. In May, May 15th, I think is the date. You will see a little trailer of the upcoming course. It's actually a fascinating course, uh, even though I didn't read the entire course yet, but I saw snippets of it. And uh, that I'll tell you about at the end of today's class. So, for today, lesson number six. Lesson number six is entitled time to improve. For the last five weeks that we were here together, we were talking about the Jews' universal influence of Judaism teachings. Today we're going to talk about two additional Jewish contributions, and then we'll turn our attention to the future to discuss the role of Jewish people and Judaism moving forward. But today, before we get there, We're going to talk about one concept, an underlying assumption, so basic, that in our previous classes, it was taken for granted. That means we didn't even bother mentioning it was an assumption that we all take for granted, and I think it's something that as people today, we can't imagine living without it. What am I talking about? Did anybody ever think that they can't improve? I am who I am, and there's nothing I can do about it. I'm starving, I'll forever be starving. I'm hurt, I'll forever be hurt. In short, to accept the way you are, and that's it, tough luck. Nobody today in the right mind thinks no, I can't improve. I can't be better. You look at somebody who says, I can't be better. You say, you're a chamanis. Oh, you on that person if they think like that? But in ancient civilizations, that's not the way it was. And throughout the course, we have read many different surprising things that have happened. And you'll believe it or not, the ancients didn't think this way. They didn't believe that sustained progress was at all possible. They didn't believe that people or things can evolve. They believed life was faded, consisted of high points and low points. It consisted of victories and losses, successes and failures, but in the end, everything always goes back to the way it was originally. And it boggles the mind to even believe that this is the way people think or thought. But you can see in text number one, I'm not making this up, there was a famous historian by the name of Thomas Cahill, I'm sure you heard of him before, he wrote some other famous works. Text number one on page 184, all evidence points to there having been in the earliest religious thought, a vision of cosmos that was profoundly cyclical. The assumption that early man made about the world we are, in all essentials, little different from the assumption that later and more of the sophisticated societies like Greece and India would make a more elaborate manner. As Henry Charles Puch says, says, the Greek thought in its seminal man and time, no event is unique, nothing is enacted but once, every event has been enacted, is enacted, and will be enacted perpetually. The same individuals have appeared, appear, and will appear at every turn of every circle. The Jews were the first people to break out of the circle, to find a new way of thinking and experiencing a new way of understanding and feeling the world so much so that it may be said that in some justice that theirs is the only new idea that human beings have ever had. But their worldview has become so much part of us That at this point, it might be as well have been written into our cells as a genetic code. We just read on page 184. Ancient civilizations tended to see time as something as nature repeating itself. The same way every single morning the sun goes up, the sun goes down, week goes in, week goes out, there were seasons, and everything is just cyclical. And so too, they also viewed life in that type of pattern, that there's just patterns. You go up, you go down, and it's just a, a roller coaster or a Ferris wheel that's sometimes top, bottom, and it just keeps on moving and things are cyclical. Nothing is permanently altered. Why was this? Because how did the ancients view the world? Through their gods. If their gods were subject to cyclical repetition, then certainly mankind was as well. In their view, worldview, Nothing really of significance changes. There's different ways that we view it, and time just keeps on repeating itself. The way they had it is their worldview would not imagine something completely different of the reality. That they wouldn't think that in 10 years from now or 100 years from now, something would be completely different. Nobody in the ancients ever had a leader that would stand up and say, "I had a dream to see a vision of something completely abstract that they don't see right now." The ancients believe whatever I see today, yes, tomorrow maybe a look a little different, but eventually I'll be back at this wheel." They couldn't imagine that the negative realities of today could be permanently forgotten. <laughs> If we think about the different revolutionary ideas that Judaism contributed to the world, if we would have had a static mind thinking that everything's cyclical, none of these revolutionary things would have happened. The only reason why Judaism contributed or or all of its contributions are about change, are about seeing things differently. In fact, in Judaism... The Torah view is number one, that A, nature doesn't control itself. Nature doesn't have its own definition. God controls nature. God implanted nature that it should be this type of way. The Torah sees time as an arena of change. The very fact that the sun comes up in the morning and goes down at night is because God mandates that's the way it should be. Yes, God created a cycle. God created a pattern. But there's nothing eternal or immutable in our society. Today it's like this, tomorrow it can change. The Torah views the world as linear. We continue to progress. It starts and it moves on. It's not that it comes back to where it was initially. We don't accept the status quo. Sure there are cycles and sure we know there are different things that go in different periods and things are cyclical. But just because it happened today doesn't mean it has to be like that tomorrow. Judaism by definition says I don't accept the status quo. Judaism looks to change the status quo. There was once this guy, who was driving all night and he decided to pull over to the side of the road to take a rest. So, it's already morning but he's taking a rest and he didn't realize that the place where he's taking a rest is right on the path where everybody goes jogging. So, he's taking a rest, 15 minutes, he falls asleep all of a sudden, there's a knock on the window. Hey, sir, would you know what time it is? He says, uh, it's 8.15. Okay. Goes back to sleep, falls asleep another half hour, again a knock on the window. Say, hey, sir, would you know what time it is? It's 8.15. Hey, whatever, it's 8.45 at this point, right? So He keeps on, um, and another 15 minutes, again a knock on the window. Sir, you know what time it is? 9 o'clock. Finally, he's fed up, takes out a pen and paper, puts a sign out on his window, and he says, I don't have the time. Ten minutes later, somebody knocks on the window. Hey, sir, it's (laughs) 9.15. There's all different types of things the way we look at it. And the way Judaism looks at it is the bottom line is that real change is always possible. There's no such thing that I'm stuck in what I've done. In the words of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs in text number 2, page 185, there's an acceptance in Judaism we call tzeduk hadin, coming to terms with suffering and loss, saying that all God does is for the best. But Jewish law asks us to accept only that which cannot be changed, as there is no evil in the future that cannot be changed. The significance of this is fundamental. The great literary engineer of ancient Greece was tragedy. And tragedy is born in the idea that there is fate and that there is inexorable, whatever. Man struggles against it and always doomed to failure. Tragedy in the Greek sense is a concept that simply cannot be translated in Biblical Hebrew. I think we had this in a previous course, if you recall, a previous class we mentioned. In Hebrew they say tragedia, which is basically English, just with a little uh at the end. But not only is there no such word, but there cannot be. For in Judaism, there is no fate that is inevitable. And that's what a tragedy means. Ours is an age of Eastern and New Age mysticism and therapies of various kinds. Mysticism is a way of accepting the world by rising above it. Therapy is a way of accepting myself that as I am. But both are ways of reconciling ourselves to a world we believe we cannot change. And both, from a Jewish point of view, are inadequate accounts of what it means to be human. Acceptance of what is, is failure to hear the call that what ought to be. In this final paragraph, Robert Sachs points out something to much people today assume that that's the way it is. How many times do you hear people say, oh, this world is just crazy, you just got to live with it. Or how many times do you tell people, say, just got to stick with it. This is the way it is. This is what happened. This is the circumstance. Not only that, in progressive, so to speak, Eastern philosophies that people do today, in meditating and all that stuff, what is it? To remove themselves from the situation. Or to be acceptance of the situation. To be tolerant of the situation. Judaism doesn't say that. Judaism tells us, no, you got to change the situation. Don't accept the status quo. If you feel that you are under suffer or whatever it may be, change that. Don't sit there with your hands folded and say, Hey, what should I do? Where do we see this? And the implication is, the Jewish teaching is that there is nothing about the future that we should take that's immutable. The proof in the pudding is, what is our ultimate future? What is the the definitive destination? Look like. What does it tell us in the prophets in Isaiah, text number 3a on page 186? It shall come a time to pass in the end of days, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift sword against each other, neither shall they learn war anymore. Maimonides brings this down as a halacha, code of Jewish law. That means this is practical application. Text number 3b. In that era there will be neither famine nor war, neither envy nor rivalry. There will be abundance and all delights will be free easily as dust. The occupation of the entire world will be solely to know God. What is the Torah telling us? What is Maimonides teaching us? What is the reality that we look forward to? No famine, no war, no envy. Tell that to somebody today. You say you fell off your rocker. How can that be possible? But Judaism tells us, no, this is what we have to aspire to. Not only that, what does Maimonides tell us that eventually will be in the coming of the time of Mashiach? What will be the pursuit of every individual? Not after physical temptations, materialistic wants. Spirituality. Everybody's going to want to know the knowledge of God. They'll beat their swords into plowshares. And you'll tell me, how is that even possible? Who wants to give up war? Look what's going on in the world. But this is what Judaism tells us. We don't take for granted what's now. We don't have to stick with the status quo. But we want to look to change and change the world forever. Interesting thing is that these concepts and any, and any monotheistic type of thinking tells us that we don't have to take the condition as a given, but it's also slowly infiltrating into the world around us. The United Nations, right across the street from the United Nations on the building, what does it say? The quote of Isaiah, and they will beat their swords into plowshares. That means even the world today understands that we can change. Even take a little things, a few things, little examples. Let's talk about one of the things that it talks about in the time of the coming of Mashiach: No war, no famine, or envy. Just take hunger, for example. In the 1960s, just to give you just a little, just a a statistic here. In the 1960s, 1.2 billion bushels of wheat were produced using 84 million acres of ground. Okay? In 2015, listen to these numbers, 2 billion bushels were produced, bushels like of wheat, using only 55 million acres. The opposite way around. That means the amount that we can do today. There is no reason, so to speak, that anybody should go hungry today. The amount of food that we can produce. That means the yield uh, from 1960 to 2015 nearly doubled, and the acreage use was reduced to the third. Same quality wheat. Huh? Same quality. Yes. Even probably even better. Not only that, talk about poverty. The level of poverty. In 1865, less than 10% of the world's population was living above the poverty line. Today's day and age, in 2015, only 10% of the world's population is below the poverty line. It's the opposite of the way around. The amount of wealth and food that exists in this world has contributed to changing the society the way it is to look forward and seeing not to accept the status quo. I don't know if you remember, there was once a book that was written about saying that in 18, before the Industrial Revolution, now they thought there's going to be a massive hunger because the population was growing grow big. We spoke about this, and they wanted to stifle the population, and then little did they realize that how much food there is in this world, to poor person, that what they ever imagined. Relating to war, war, same idea, 50 year just to give you a little bit of example an, of a little bit of a difference in a 50 year span from 1550 from 1500 to 1550 European countries were collectively involved in 504 years of war okay take a 15 year span from 1951 to 2000 European countries were only involved in 74 collective wars totally. How many wars was it the first time? 504, um, Five years. 504 years of war. No, no from 1500 back. to 15 years collectively, if you would take all the European countries, the amount of time that each one spent year, and you put it together, it would add up in 50 years, about 504 years of war. <laughs> in the 50 years from 1950 to 2000, collectively would be 74 years of war. So you see wars, the diminution. Any person that opens up any history book, it used to be, you didn't like the guy, you killed him. Done, over. A war started out of nonsense, even though some war started, also started out of nonsense. But the amount of war, the conflict, the death, we see the world is coming to realize that it is possible to change. The very fact that these conversations are even the starting that there is a concept of the United Nations that when it started for a good reason, the Bill of Melinda Gates that's trying to eradicate AIDS or whatever other things, poverty, all these different conversations of people going to third world countries and trying to eradicate illnesses, poverty, uh, and different things. This very fact teaches us that we can understand and realize that there are goals, as Isaiah Maimonides puts it, where we can bring the world to a natural state of understanding where hunger should be eradicated, evil should be eradicated, and it's no longer just because this person is bad, it's going to stay bad, or evil is going to stay evil. We can do things in this world that can change and eradicate bad things from this world. Jewish people forever believed in such things. Jewish people from the time of millennium, one of the 13 cardinal beliefs, 13 principles of faith that my manity says, That Jews, even on their way to the death gas chambers, were singing, I believe with perfect faith in the coming of Moshiach, I will await His coming every day. That means no matter how the future seemed bleak to them, even if their death was imminent, there was always an awaiting, there was always a change, there was always a hope, there was always a wish To make things better. Jews never accepted violence and greed as the only possible way. We always believed that there was something beyond it. We always knew there's something better on the other side. We're not talking about politics. Please don't mention it. The world view that changes and rocks civilization and it allowed for this whole paradigm shift For us, not only as a sport, Jewish people did what Judaism did, was change the way we look at the world that we can actually change it. That is one of the gifts that I think that we did not discuss in the previous five classes, but it's so to speak underlying because it's so obvious. The concept that things can change. All medical advances that we have, anything that we have today in the world, is based on the idea that we can change, which initially the ancients did not believe and did not have. What's the second thing? The second thing that the Torah tells us is that the Torah doesn't only provide us with the destination of what the world will look like when the time comes, but the Torah also gives us assurances, but not only assurances, but a roadmap of how to get there and helps us make the journey to be able to get to that desired goal. And in order to discover the roadmap, we first need to discuss something called morality. Many people talk about morality In relative terms. For example, you will find many people say, I believe that um, prostitution is wrong. But if Joe Schmo thinks it's okay, let him go and do it. Meaning, we don't all view morality the same way. One person believes what morality is, and another person believes that morality is something else. There's Sometimes we say, it's my personal belief that what this person did wrong or would you say what this person did is categorically wrong which one would you pick depends on what it is depends on what it is when would you say something is categorically wrong, is
1: it wrong another
0: person? so you're saying the only time we say morality something is immoral if it hurts somebody else no. So there are, if it hurts another person, that's a very broad. That means is war always categorically wrong? No,
2: war is not
0: wrong. I'm asking based on what you say, that if it's hurting somebody else, is categorically wrong? Is war always something wrong? If it's in self-defense. So again, so now it's not absolute, so it's not categorically. Okay. Categorically wrong if it's against power. Categorically wrong. So what does it mean when I say something's categorically wrong? That means it's an absolution to it. There is, no, there is no ifs and buts, right? Mm-hmm. When can we decide that something is objectively wrong or something is subjectively wrong? Can something be objectively wrong because I feel it's objectively wrong? Then it's not objectively, it's subjectively because I feel it. It's not absolute. So what we have over here is the idea that something is absolute the only way I could say something is absolute is if it comes from a higher authority. If I say it's because I feel something, thank you, you feel so, and I feel different. The only way I can say something is objectively wrong and not subjective is only if it comes from a higher authority, and that higher authority is not related to the subject whatsoever, and therefore it's objectively wrong because it's absolute. What monotheism has brought to the world, what Judaism has given the world, is the concept of an absolute authority. And that absolute authority, God issued absolute morality. Does that mean to say the pagans had no moral values? They may have had moral values, and they did. But the difference is that their morality was a choice. So today my choice is, let's take your case, Today my choice is that if it's going to hurt somebody, it's morally improper. But if tomorrow I'm going to call that hurting somebody self-defense, then it becomes proper. So as long as my morality is based on a choice, on an instinct, then it's not absolute. The only way it becomes absolute beyond question if it's because of a higher authority. So to look at the difference, is there a difference? What we're going to look at Is there a difference of looking at something based on the fact that it becomes absolute? And does the standard of the moral conviction matter if it's absolute or not? And here is where we see the difference. If I am moral by choice, then I am free to change my mind, make exceptions, decide circumstances and say this is okay and this is not okay. Not only that... If I am moral by choice, I don't have a right to tell you what to do. Why? Because that's my choice. I can't make choices for you. So automatically I've diminished the level of morality. I cannot make you binding to something that I feel. Just because I feel it's improper for you to do something, great. You feel, don't do it. What do you want from me? The only way something can be imposed on somebody else, if it comes from a higher authority. Well, even the law, if you leave interpretation for the law, I can interpret the law one way, you can interpret the law another way. That means my feeling of the law is, A, and you huh? can still hold. Okay, very good. And we're going to get to that concept of why it's important that even non-Jews have laws of order. And we're going to, for this reason, that we'll get to it in a moment. Now, this doesn't mean that people who don't believe in God, or I would say it the other way, does it doesn't mean that people who believe in God will always behave morally. um, And they can't behave immorally. Why? Because at the end of the day, and the beginning of the day, I should say, we have an evil inclination. And the evil inclination causes us to do things which are immoral, evil, and wrong. And our evil inclination can get rather creative and uh, design compelling, sophisticated uh, uh, comments or arguments which will justify an immoral behavior. Even in an absolute morality. Why? Because that's exactly what the evil inclination is all about. Despite our belief in God, the evil inclination has persuasion. And say, ah, this is not so important. But yet, if we believe that our standards originate from God, then we have power and impetus to fight the evil inclination. If the evil inclination comes along and tells us, ah, you don't have to listen to us because it's your choice, why do you have to be so strict? Now think about it this way. Let's say you took it upon yourself to be a to do a certain str- uh, of, uh, a certain diet. It's your choice, and you see a really tempting good seven-layer cake. What does the evil inclination come along and say? Today you'll break the diet. You won't eat tomorrow lunch because of it. It all of a sudden has a rationale. But let's say the diet comes along and says the diet is the seven-layer cake, God forbid, it wasn't kosher. The evil inclination comes along, yeah, tomorrow you won't eat lunch. What does that have to do if it's not kosher? I can't help make it up. I can't change. So if it's my choice, I have wiggle room with the evil inclination. I can't fight the evil inclination. He has a, an idea. But if it's absolute... It's from God. I have what to respond to the evil inclination. Yes, he tempts it. He makes it difficult. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, as we mentioned, the Ten Commandments have in it. The Ten Commandments tell us about what's the first one of the Ten Commandments? I am God who took you out of Egypt. What's the last five of the Ten Commandments? Moral and ethical law values. Don't kill, don't steal, and so on. What is God telling us? Why shouldn't you kill, steal, rape, and whatever it may be? Not because it's moral that people decided this is what should be done. A subjective morality. It's an absolute morality because God told you to do it. So therefore there's never an excuse for it. Because the only one that could make the excuse is God. And unless God tells you you can kill this person, you have no right in the world, no excuse whatsoever to be able to kill What we see from over here is many gods cause us to be able to have certain type of subjective morality of subjective. Why is that? Because the gods themselves are subjective. There was a god of stealing, there was a god of honesty, there was a god of wealth. So there's many different gods and therefore I don't have to be consistent. A single authority gives me morality and absolute morality. And that's what one of the contributions that the Judaism gave the concept of absolute morality. At times, people chose what their behavior should be, how they should behave. And based on what was beneficial for society or for themselves at the time, that's what they believed was moral and ethical. <coughs> Take a little, even a little uh, example. I always say, 50 years ago, what was rated R, today is probably not even PG, Right? Why? Because over here you have things, morality, which was subjective to people. So it wasn't absolute. But Torah tells us the code of Jewish law hasn't changed in the past 3,000 years of what is considered moral and ethical. But you may ask, well, the pagans believed in human powers, gods, and so on. But again, what does it tell us? Their gods, because there was many gods, they were morally and subjective. And therefore, they had different times in different ways. And But take it even a step further. Here is a primary difference between monotheism, going back to what we discussed in class number two, what monotheism contributes and helps and brings, and the primary difference between polytheism and monotheism. When you have a polytheistic uh, theory and a theology, Every culture has its multitude of gods, which means that there is no absolute authority. And when there is no absolute authority, what happens? Each person does what they want. Even more so, as we mentioned, the gods behave in abstract ways. And as we mentioned, that they believed that there was a god of this and a god of that, and the gods fought with each other, as we discussed at length in lesson number two. Number three, as we also discussed in lesson number two, there's an indifference to the world. The gods couldn't care less what happens in the world. So because the gods couldn't care less what happens in the world, there was no establishment of moral communication because of a godly behavior. It was all the human condition decided that what we need for a better society, that's what we should be doing. What Abraham, our forefather, taught us was a whole different thing. Whoops, let me just go back. Because there's a single authority, therefore there's a standard. God is just and moral. And not only that, God cares about the world. So automatically our relationship has a whole different relationship. The morality is absolute. The morality becomes imposed. The morality then can be imposed on others as well. Let's take a little example. Take a little example from the story that we're all very familiar with with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. God comes to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, but before he destroys the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, he comes to Abraham and tells Abraham, "I'm going to do it." And Abraham over here challenges God to be able to say to try to save the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's read through the shaded box and let's see if we can underscore and find these three concepts: the single authority, God is moral and cares about the world within these three verses. And as follows. God said to Abraham, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah are so great, the sin is so grievous that I will not I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that reached me. If it is, I will destroy them. Now here's Abraham. Now listen to the words that Abraham tells God. Abraham approached God and approached and said to God, Will you even destroy the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you destroy it and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it for you to do such a thing, to kill the kingdom of the righteous along the wicked and treat the righteous like wicked. Far be it from you, to read the last few words, will the judge of the entire earth not perform justice. So look at here. Where do you see these three concepts? Single authority, caring for the world, and God is moral within these three, this last verse. So as we read these verses, you'll see that these verses are loaded with insight. Step number one. What, is Moshe, what does Abraham tell God? God, you are the one. Here's the judge of the entire earth. You make the choices. There's nobody above you. You can decide what happens with the fate of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you decide that their behavior is immoral, that's it. There's nobody in the questioning. You are the judge. But then he continues. Just and moral. Far it be from you. He says the verdict is incompatible with God's nature. You want to go and destroy an entire city? Aren't you the benevolent God. How are you going to destroy an entire city? Why? And he continues to say, because it's not like you're indifferent like the other gods. You care about the world. And if you care about the world, you know that the outcry of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah are so great, and that's why God says, that's why I have to destroy them. Because the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, those that are being tortured by those people, are crying, and they are immoral and destroying humanity. What we see over here is the gift that monotheism gave the world is of absolute morality. This fundamental part of the roadmap of Judaism of making this world a progress, a more moral, and influencing the world, changing the world, to realize that there is an absolute morality. And it's not that we need to tell the world to behave in a proper way because we Jews feel it's better. It's because that's the way it is. It's absolute. It's because God commanded it to be so. And because God commanded it to be so, that's why that's the way it is. Automatically, this endears in the world a greater sense of spirituality, godliness, and it makes the world more attuned to what spirituality is all about. So while we talk about absolute moral standards and how we have to impress the world with absolute moral standards and the gift that Judaism has given the world of absolute moral standards, did God actually lay down the law to humanity at large of how they should behave? We know the Jewish people will be given 630 commandments about what we have to do. What about the world at large? We talk about Judy's contribution to the world. But was there anything categorically that God said... To the world, as humanity at large, for you to journey in this progress, in these gifts that were given to them. Was there a purpose? Was there a reason? And the answer is absolutely. As we'll see in the next text, in text number five. God commanded Adam concerning six matters. He forbade him idolatry, blasphemy, murder, illicit sexual relations, theft, and he instructed him to establish a judiciary. That's back to what you said the court of law. To Noah, God added another prohibition consuming a limb of a torn living animal. Anybody know why to Noah he had to add that one? People were eating
2: animals without killing That's we were allowed
1: to then eat meat.
0: Correct. On the contrary, you were not allowed to eat meat until Noah people were vegetarians. They didn't consume meat. Only once Noah came out of the ark did God say it's permissible for the humans to eat meat. Once he said it was permissible for humans to eat meat, he then said, however, you cannot hurt the animal while it's alive. These mitzvahs are known as the seven Noahide laws. And the reason why they're known as the seven Noahide laws is because they were given to the Jewish people, they were given to humanity as. Noah, who was the one that remained after the ark, it's not called Adam's laws, even though it was initially given to Adam, because all of Adam's descendants were essentially killed during the flood. The only one that survived was Noah and his family, and they were reinstated to Noah and his family, and therefore it was considered to Noah's descendants, and this is to all of humanity. Jew and non-Jew alike, regardless of what religion, what creed they may be, every single person has to follow these seven Noahide laws. But when we break down these seven Noahide laws, we can see that all of these laws have a certain purpose and intent of why God gave it to you, all of humanity, as they are a formula for moral living. And let's break it down one at a time. Idolatry. What is idolatry? Why is there a prohibition against idol worship? Because the only way I can believe in an absolute morality is I believe that there's only one God. If I don't believe, if I believe in idols, and they just whimsical, and they just do whatever they want, and today they're angry, tomorrow they're sad, so then there's no absolution. Step number one for me to be moral is I have to know that there's an absolute morality to know that there's a God. Step number two why idolatry is not allowed and blasphemy together is because... I need to know that we were created in the divine image like we discussed in lesson number three. When I know that I was created in the divine image, then I know that I have a purpose in this world. So the first step that God sets down for all humanity is idolatry and blasphemy is prohibited because you need to know there's an absolute morality. And number two, you have to know that every single person has a purpose in this world. By embracing a higher authority. Let's go to step number three. Elicit relations. Our unique purpose is to cultivate a loving, a supportive family. Family values. If the family unit is not safe and is not a secure place, what is this world going to look like? One of the reasons why the world was destroyed by the flood was because the loving foundation of family was gone. What that God created for the Jewish people was the concept of Shabbos, that we are able to rest and get along and spend time with one another. But for the world as large, they don't have Shabbos, but they have the concept of family, a family framework. And therefore, the God that gave us that sexual impulse, being so powerful, should be harnessed to keep the family together, not God forbid to break it up. And therefore, when we realize and we act in the divine image, and we act with purpose and realization of absolute morality, we then can keep the family together. Which brings us to the next step of murder. Why murder is prohibited for humanity as well. Because, being that we're all created in the divine image, as we discussed at length in lesson 3 and 4, this negates the fact of murder, theft, because life flourishes with opportunities that God has assigned for every single one of us, and so nobody has the right to steal from you that opportunity or that gift that God has given you, and therefore nobody has the right to steal, hurt, or another individual who are all created in God's image. And although we were permitted to kill animals and to consume the meat, it is unbecoming of an individual who is created in God's image to go and hurt and inflict pain, unnecessary pain, onto an animal. Which brings us to the final step, which is theft and abuse of cruelty to the animals and judiciary. What's the purpose of laws? There will always be people who will fail to live up to the mentioned standards that we spoke about. One reaction may be some can say, well, that's between them and God, it's not my business. But what is the famous saying go? is the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing, right? So as long as we sit on the sidelines and say, well, it's not my business, live and let live, what happens? A world of chaos ensues. That's why one of the seven Noahide laws are that there has to be laws of justice. There has to be a judiciary system to enforce these moral standards. What we see over here is, and you can see it in the figure on 6.2 on page 192, Going through the seven Noahide laws, these are, again, the idolatry and blasphemy establishes absolute morality, illicit sexual relations establish family framework, murder don't violate the image of God, theft don't abuse those who were created in the image of God, cruelty to animals don't be sadistic, and judiciary enforces law and order in society. It's important to note, A, that these are just seven general laws. Maimonides, when he talks about it, and also in the Code of Jewish Law, it's brought down, these laws branch out into many other laws. For example, the prohibition of stealing includes rape, kidnap, not paying employees an agreed upon payment, or if you about, we, if you remember we spoke about in the first class the concept of tzedakah, helping somebody which is poor, which is, comes into the laws of judiciary system, setting up a system that everybody is taken care of, a mandate where the Torah th- talks about to ensure that murderers are punished, which is also part of the judiciary system. So when you consider all these laws, these are just basically seven categories. Just on a side note, interesting thing was that in the time of the temple when Jewish people had sovereignty over Jews and non-Jews, they had the right to enforce these seven Noahide laws on the non-Jews. And the same way a Jew was punished for abrogating any of the 613 commandments, a non-Jew was punished for not for violating the seven Noahide laws. But now, we don't have that authority. But imagine, take for a moment, imagine a world where everybody lives by these seven Noahide laws. What kind of world would we live in? It would be fantastic. A yes. Yeah. Who decides what a family framework should be? Very good question. So if we go by what defines absolute morality, who defines what absolute morality is? God. If God decides what an absolute morality is, then we cannot go and differ what morality is. Why does this... Because, again, what was the prohibition of the family framework? The
2: legitimate kids.
0: Not necessarily legitimate, but illicit, promiscuous behavior. Now, promiscuous behavior, that means not utilizing the God-given strengths that we have to live up to the divine image that God has given us. So we are not here to be able to decide what a person's inklings may be, and though may people may have, let's say, disturbances and inklings which may be negative, so to speak, in the eyes of God, we cannot say, well, it becomes moral because since that person can't hold himself in. Let's say a person had a desire to be promiscuous, he had an illness. Would we at any time justify that illness? Absolutely not. Why? Because we believe in an absolute morality. Now when we talk about family framework means that we want to be able to create a life and a family of what, to be able to make it dear in something which God decided is dear. (coughs) If two people decide that they want to cohabitate together, there's nothing wrong with that. But we cannot call it a family framework. If we want to call something which is family, let's take it even a step further. The concept of family by definition is a God-created idea. In the book of Genesis, therefore man and woman shall leave their home and become one. That's the, the concept of, of two people leaving where they come from and the becoming one entity of a new family is a God-given idea. It doesn't negate, doesn't say that two people of whoever wants to be friends and live together doesn't say that. But if you want to talk about family, unit, one, leaving where they come from and becoming a separate entity is something which is godly. An individual on his own can't do that. For that reason, the only people that can pro recreate is when there's a husband and a wife, when there's a male and a female come together. Why? Because that is a godly type of divine intervention. And when a male and a female come together in a divine way, then they can procreate and be godly. That's why two males can procreate and two females can procreate. Sometimes a male and a female. That's a di- that's a different thing, but that's not because. First of all, the concept is what make what doesn't allow them is a separate story, and that's, and when we say that doesn't happen, it's a problem. We look to find solutions to be able to change it. But nobody in their right mind thinks male and male should procreate or female and female should procreate. They're not going to all of a sudden fertility and everything. Else. Why? Because it's not what the divine message was for a family unit. Does it mean that they can't do whatever they want and can two people can't be friends together and two people can't cohabitate together? Not at all. But the definition of creating family is something that God created. The definition of a family within a family or creating a new family is a religious, is a godly idea. So when I talk about morals within a godly idea is what God decides is moral within a family. So as much as I like it or don't like it, it's absolute. That's exactly what we're gonna to get to in a moment when we like something or not, why absolute is so important. Based on what you just said, is that also, that would incorporate that gays, whether it be male or female, um, should not be able to adopt a child? I didn't say that. I didn't say that. that? That's, that's a separate discussion. If they should, or should not. Any why, could, why should it be any different than a single parent being allowed to adopt? It's, no, it's not allowed to adopt. The Torah doesn't say allowed to adopt. If a person is going to be a good caretaker of a child, who cares what they are? And if this child leaves a home, who cares where they go to? That's a separate discussion. That's not. That when we talk about family values and families think together, the seven Ohai laws of why the Torah doesn't allow promiscuous behavior, it's for the same reason why the Torah only creates, because the Torah mandates and says what is considered a family. Well, that's why it sounds like that same would fall into the same thing. No, absolutely not. So some of you may think, well, this is unrealistic to everybody follow the seven Ohai laws. But then the question is, if we think it's realistic, are we suffering from the same problem that the ancients believe that we can't change? And therefore we have to believe that we could change. Monotheistic thinking means that nothing today is natural. The world is a human condition. We shouldn't say just because people are behaving today in some way, and therefore it can't change. Absolutely. We don't give in to things at times as cyclical, and this is the way people behave, and that's tough luck. On the contrary. The more things change, the more things they stay the same. And they said, even if you don't seem to change, they need not be the same. The Torah is pleading with us, dream, change. And if you persist, it won't be a dream, it will actually change. What does this mean to us for Jewish people? So these are the seven Noachai laws given to the non-Jews, to the, all of humanity. But what does it mean for us, especially to Jewish people? So all of us, until now, we've spoken about the Torah has given two important gifts to the world. But, the, and the first that we spoke about, the concept of time being linear, that we can change. Secondly, the concept of absolute morality. While the Torah is the prognator of these concepts and these ideas, and while the Torah brings to reality and brings to fruition the understanding of these ideas, We as Jewish people always had a unique mandate and have a unique mandate to inspire, to educate the nations around us and get them to adopt and these higher levels of morals, even though they on their own may not, to help them and educate them. As we see Isaiah told the Jewish people in his time, text text number 6a, Nations shall walk by your Israel's light and kings by the glow of your radiance. The mandate of the Jewish people to be a light unto the nations were given to the Jewish people by Mount Sinai when God told us in text number 6b and you shall be a kingdom of priests you shall be a treasure for me in the sense that you'll be a kingdom of priests to guide and to teach the entire human race to call upon the name of God and serve him with one purpose. We the Jewish people have this obligation to continue to be a light unto the nations and to show the world what it means to believe in God. We, the Jewish people, have to be the ones to take a personal interest in cultivating morality, transforming the world. And we, as the descendants of Abraham, have that obligation, just like Abraham did in his time, taught monotheism to the world. Just like Abraham in his time. You know when Abraham was around, there were other great people. But they didn't merit that the Jewish people should come from them. Tell me some other great people that were around at the time of Abraham. Give you a hint. Where did Jacob learn after he finished by his father before he went to Haran? By the yeshiva of Shem and Aver? Who came out to greet Abraham after he destroy, destroyed the people of Sodom? Malkit said that the he was called the priest. Shame. How come we don't see any great mention about him saying that the children of Shem are going to be the Jewish people? Abraham was from shame, but what about everybody else? The reason is, because they did nothing to change humanity. They did nothing to propagate the world's immorality. Abraham, on the other hand, didn't just stay in the academy and study Torah, but Abraham was considered the first Jew because he went around teaching monotheism to the world. He felt it was his right, not only his right, but his responsibility, that we need to educate the world in morality. We need to be a light unto the nations. And Abraham began this tradition and the mission continued with us his children in transforming the world and making it a better place. I was just thinking, we
1: don't really prophesize like the Christians did. They went to all the different countries to teach their oh. religion. We're going to get
0: now into the difference between the Christians and the Jews about that. Okay. But we're going to get just one moment. Now with the advent of Christianity in the first century, here, there you go, and Islam in the seventh century, in some ways, there was a positive influence towards this concept and the goals that were set. So, you're going to say, what Christianity, Islam, what kind of positive goals? So let's first talk about the positive, and then we'll get to our negative. What was the positive that Christianity and Islam had? These faiths, though they are not consistent with Judaism, but at the other side of the spectrum, they did spread monotheism. They did spread a message of love, peace, to a certain extent. For For many centuries, they spoke about different things. And in the 12th century, Maimonides says an interesting thing. That was censored, you know, that for many years all the Jewish books were published, especially in Lithuania and in Russia, had to go through a censorship. And anything that had any relationship with um, Jesus or any other Christianity or anything like that, they would erase. Now, years later, we're able to find original documents and they reprinted Maimonides, the Talmud. And you see big sections missing about it. And here's a section that Maimonides writes about. And addresses this concept. Listen to this. It's a very interesting statement. Maimonides says, text number seven. The designs of the Creator to defy human comprehension for His ways are not like ours, nor His thoughts are like our thoughts. Ultimately, the events of Jesus the Nazareth and those of Muhammad the Ishmaelite, who struck by Christianity and Islam, who arose after Him, only served to pave the way for Messiah and to prepare the entire world for the time of all humanity will serve God together. As the verse states, I will purify with speech and all of people, so that they will call upon the name of God and serve him with one purpose. How is this? By way of, reli- of these religions? The world has been filled with the talk of Messiah, the Torah, and the mitzvahs. As a result, awareness of these concepts has reached the furthermost islands and the most spiritually insensitive nations, and these concepts have become regular topics of discussion among them. What we see over here, if we read Maimonides very carefully, what does Maimonides tell us? And it refers specifically to these two gifts that we mentioned today. That the positive influence of Christianity and Islam was number one, the concept of Moshiach. That the world will ultimately come to a change. Where did they take it from? Of course they took it from Judaism. But the fact is that they had a broader reach than Jews and they taught the world that there is an era of change. Number two is, upon other positive influence, is the concept of mitzvahs, to accept an absolute moral behavior. Seven hide laws, they call it the Ten Commandments, whatever it was. But the concept of an absolute morality, those two concepts were taught by Christianity and Islam to the world at large. Now, this is not an endorsement of Christianity or Islam in any shape or form, but the fact that these religions have, have uh, these religions adopt the teachings from Judaism in many instances, have created some type of spin in effect to something that was foreign to Judaism or foreign to people who are foreign to Judaism have now adopted these type of beliefs. The problem was, sadly, many Jews today assume that Messiah, Mashiach, is a Christian belief. Or many Jewish people people assume that hell and heaven is a Christian belief. Why? Because Judaism, because uh, Christianity or Islam adopts it, perverts it, messes it up, and then we believe that's, what we, that we, that's their belief, not our belief. But really it all comes from Judaism. But the question is, if Jews are charged with the mandate to promote Noachad laws, right, that's what we're talking about, Abraham was from Abraham, why haven't we done it? Where are we going wrong? What were we missing until now? Why were we allowing the Christians and the Muslims to be able to do it? And their perverted way and their wrong way. Not only that, what the bigger problem of negativity of Christianity and Islam is that what do they do? Persecution. If you didn't ascribe to their way of thinking and their perverted way of thinking or their extreme way of thinking, which was a distraction of what Judaism initially taught, it was Persecution. And the answer of why, and that's really the answer why Judaism, why Jewish people for all these years were afraid and prevented Jews from serving the role as being a light unto the nations about these absolute issues. Text number eight. It's a little long, but here you follow it. It is a well known that Jews in previous generations were weary of any behavior that can be construed and facilitating converting to Judaism, as conversion to Judaism. Even when the prospective convert was an initiator, and certainly if it could be viewed as an attempt to promote conversion. This was the case even in countries where conversion to Judaism was not outlawed, because even in those countries, such behavior have resulted in dangerous libels. In addition, there was concern that it could be used against the Jews in other lands. It is self-understood that encouraging non-Jews to observe the seven Eucharist laws would have also been dangerous because this could have been construed as an intrusion into, our, into their faith. It is thus understood that Jews generally avoided advocating observance of the Noahide laws out of the concern for their lives. On the rare occasion that something was done in this regard, it was approached with care and discretion. This is likely the reason why the subject was not discussed in Jewish legal responsa and is not mentioned in the Code of Jewish Law, and the only place it is, is in Maimonides. Obviously, when this concern no longer applies... Such, such as in our current climate, the <coughs> obligation to promote the Noahide laws is fully applicable. And interestingly enough, in, I think in 1989 already, President Reagan signed into law the seven Noahide laws after the fall of communism, together with Gorbachev, they signed some type of statement of uh, promoting the seven Noahide laws. So Jews were insular not by choice in many of their cities. There are stories you can read beyond belief how if a non-Jew wanted to convert to Judaism, the Jews not only rejected him because that's what he's supposed to do initially according to Jewish law, because they were petrified for their life. There was once the story, I remember reading in Rome, there was a master debater of, Jewish, of Christianity that they always used to debate against the Jews. And after a while, he decided, he realized that, because since he had to study the Jewish text so much, <coughs> that he wanted to convert to Judaism. He had to escape from Italy, he had to go all the way to Russia, change his identity, live there for 10 years, and only then would they accept him it's until all the Roman people would stop looking from everything else because if the pre- Pope said to a priest in Russia, because they were all Catholic, then at that time that this guy converted to Jew, it could have been a tragedy for the whole entire city. So there was a very, very, precautions were taken to make sure that they didn't... Uh, at that time, try to convert uh, non-Jews to Judaism, and if anything seemed, even in the most remote way, that they were trying to persuade them in something, which is, for example, promote the Seven Ohide laws, they were shunned from doing it, and therefore our ancestors, uh, we're judi, we're code of Jewish law, where our ancestors left off by Abraham, we today need to pick that up. What century? Yes, which one? About the, the guy that wanted to convert. This what? happened uh, even as late as 16th century. Even, or 18th century, the one that I was talking about. Yes, one second. My question is, how come they weren't doing that in the time of Jesus? They weren't advocating... The Seven Ochaid laws? laws Who says they weren't? The they were. They were. In fact, we find it all over in the Talmud. In the Talmud, it talks about those different levels of a Geret a what they were at the time. And even in the time, of, in the time of the Romans as well, there had to be certain levels of careful... Uh, of caring, what they were promoting and where they were promoting it. You're saying Jews teaching non-Jews about Judaism? It wasn't about Judaism, the seven Eucharist laws. Jews teaching other people. Other people about seven Eucharist laws. We do find it. Yes, we do. It, there is found Talmudic text which talks about, in fact, that was one of the rationales why the rabbis allowed Rabbi Yeshua to debate the Romans at the time. Because hopefully it would impress them to at least follow the seven Eucharist laws.
1: Judaism, they didn't want to do it, because especially in the Eastern European countries, the reason why a lot of them would try to convert is because they were poor peasants who weren't taken care of by their families, poor, hungry, whatever it is, and they saw that the Jews took care of their poor, and they wanted to be taken care of
0: That was in the later years. That was already in the, uh, probably, 18th century. (laughs) Yeah. But even then... Even then, they were still, <coughs> we're talking about it when the Shulchan Aruch was written, when the Code of Jewish Law was written, it's the 16th century. And they, why is there no mention in the Code of Jewish Law about to teach the non-Jews that seven Ochaid laws? Maimonides talks about it, Maimonides goes on to say it's not only seven, I think he goes up to 27. The Talmud talks about it, it's brought in Isaiah. We find it throughout, and people did. And the question, why Code of Jewish Law? And At that, that period of time, we find many times even Ahmanides, give you an example, even Ahmanides who was brought by into Spain to debate the Spanish people at the time. He won the debate because they were worried that he may win over all the rest of the people, There, they expelled him from Spain. So the, the danger was very clear. Later on, we talk about, that's where Code of Jewish Law talks about conversion, that you have to tell the person three times to, to, um, to persuade them not to, and only then to make sure they're not just coming for any financial benefit or marital benefit or something of that nature. So how do we go about promoting these teachings of Judaism that have universal applications to our non-Jewish acquaintance and fellow citizens? And here's a wonderful video where you can see of one such example. (coughs) There we go. Whoops, went too fast. Moment.
1: David Chase was a prominent businessman and philanthropist.
2: He led numerous charitable efforts for the Chabad movement. He was appointed chairman of the board of the Rabbinical College of America in Morristown, New Jersey, in 1967. In 1984, he was appointed by the Rebbe
1: as chairman of the Machane Israel Development Fund. Happy had a birthday. Joyce, in effect, and uh, I will see the memo? it is not proper for a friend, ask a friend for a birthday gift, but in your case, because of the relationship that we have, I would ask you to give me a birthday present, which in fact would result in you putting on a pillow and saying it uh, is Spice and if we can't do any more, I'll be satisfied with that. From mm-hmm. today, I made a commitment. I put on thousands to them, I never failed to do one day. And I'm really proud. I mean today when we are sometimes underwater and it gets a little shaky, it tough to stand up and, and double it. But I one have one way the other way I should do it. Mm-hmm. Got a big kick out of it I and mean, kinda of lectured on it for a while
2: seldana yi do dolisteregent mal xiam ni shan in tei zamin ni pei sei wa dolisterevent so bische zei elche geschenke paar nussen gesundere achifo gewar schon in der nicht versälen darf weil ihr in nicht es der der Bishas lekkum es man hat vieler viele, viele der die gewusst hat mit philo schlug, Da sein Poller mir und das wissen, wo sie die Finze chmise. kommen, das ist die Finne nach die einseitig, die und werden nicht wen und nicht die bei dem Kapten, bei dem Richter
1: my sleeping quarters are below, and the lower part of the boat is the pilot house, the upper part of the boat. In the morning, when I get up, when we are underway, I call them up. I say, by the way, Captain, what's our heading? It was in north, south, east, west, so many degrees. But put your time when I asked them originally. He said to me, Mr. Chase gave me such and such and such. Then one day he said, are you studying right now to, to, to be able to run? Are you trying to learn how to run a boat? Do you study navigation? I said, no. I said, the only thing, because I, I knew some of it, but I said, the only thing I would want to know, his name was Dick Winters, I said, Dick, what I want you to know is that I every morning pray to God before I go upstairs, before I have breakfast. And I say my smile, I, I didn't go into details.
2: But I want to face east, which is Jerusalem. <laughs> und will nachher sein, dapp die Pone und die Miserung, das viele sein, mit vielen da er, er 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 ich, viel ich weiß nicht, Dr. er mit der Er ich das mit ich nicht, er die was sie davon erwischt, dass das Verbinden nicht mit der der Linie dem Zara, Linie von Schellen Mitzvah von der Schellen Mitzvah Und wir bauen da Mitzvah, halten sich am Tefah, am Mitzvah ist eine sichere Sache, euch bei dem Reishachinol, bei dem Kap.
1: He had a wife who was one of his crew crew on the boat. And we put them to Black Island one day. He said, "Mr. I wonder if you give me permission to leave. It was a Sunday morning. To leave for an hour with my wife. If you... Do the davening. You pray to God every morning. You're making me very guilty that I do not follow my faith. Please allow me to go and say my place. Be, be my guest. I said, I'm glad that you also have a chance to pray to God and thank God. I was involved in many Jewish and well as non-Jewish causes that brought back closer the Jewish people with the non-Jewish people. And many, many times there were examples by not even trying to when you press something. One of the examples was when flying to Poland at the an airplane and I had a group of people who were wanting to open up an insurance company in Poland. When we were in the plane for about three or four hours coming from New York to Warsaw, daybreak started coming after the morning started. I excused myself when we talked business and I went over across the aisle to a seat, put a there, and took a prayer book, a sitable and started saying my prayers. I came back to the sea, and I showed myself, they, they, they were Christians, all the four or five people that travel with me. And I am not heard anything about the incident about four or five years later, when I get a call, say, Mr. Shea, do you remember when we flew to Warsaw together, and sat sat there? I said, yes, of course I do. And he said to me, he said, I want you to know that you made a tremendous change in my life. I never believed in God, I never followed anything. When I show you do what you did, praying to God, Setting aside the business a secondary, but that was more important. I changed my whole life and I'm grateful to you. I never forget the kindness and the direction you showed me. I said, Don't you thank me, thank the very much, because this is the way I was taught as well.
0: Well you see over here the impression that we as people David James was in our own little way, can make a difference. And sometimes you don't even realize the difference that you're making. And God works in mysterious ways. And the very fact that we have the ability today to go back to the... that we are able to bring out in the public discussions the concept of morality, faith. It's time that we can also teach the world about the seven uh, seven Noahide laws and make them fully integrated with the Western mind and society. The concept that today, the rejection of theft, murder, rape, all these things are obvious to people, so the average person understands the value of seven Noahide laws, which makes it much easier for us to be able to teach the world about it. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs therefore says, today more than ever the world needs to hear Jewish voices, and pertaining to some most crucial questions of the day. As you see in text number nine, Matthew Arnold once said, As long as the world lasts, all who want to make progress in righteousness will come to Israel for inspiration. All who have the sense of righteousness must glowing and strongest. Far from having completed its task, it would be fair to say that a Jewish contribution to civilization has really been more more urgently needed. For the first time, we live in a plural plural society in which Jews have the opportunity to enter public debate on free and equal terms. And for the first time since the decline and fall of ancient Greece and Rome, there's a real battle to be fought between Judaic (coughs) and neo-pagan ideas of human responsibility, sexuality, the family, the sanctity of human life, the rule of law, the objectivity of moral values, and the ethics of market and public square. So if you take a bit of it for a moment, and you take the examples that Rabbi Sachs brings here, and you look at the ideas that Judaism brings, and the Jewish influence, how relevant it is, whether it's human responsibility live well, in an age where many believe that we are just products of our nature and environment and think we can't change it. And certain tendencies that we have are just automatic. And therefore, the first thing we need to know is that we have to, as Jews, we need to ensure all people that we were created in the divine image and act as such and teach them that we have a responsibility to the world. We have a responsibility to ourselves. We're not here by accident. We have a purpose in this world. Number two is, even more so, sexuality. In the 1960s, there was an era that was called the sexual revolution. Movements that helped move people develop healthier attitudes toward proper sexual conduct. And in that days, but it, it was still in an era where they said, anything goes, or they said, everything goes. Even till today, the problems of sexuality to linger, whether it's pornography being the most, uh, most profitable companies, if you want to call it, and these type of things. We know today too many instances of infidelity has become a norm in certain places and other things. So you just have to turn on the news on a regular day and see how many things are destructive in many more ways than one to tearing families apart. And it's time to reclaim the sanctity that there is in sexuality. More so the family. Take, for example, today we live in an era where there's a no-fault divorce. It used to be families stayed together through thick and thin, made it work, worked on it to work, made sure it was to work. Today, after two years, three years, four years, five years, whatever it is, people find marriages more often than their careers, whatever it may be. Or they look at career over family. It doesn't have value, they lose value for what it is, and therefore hurting the family cohesiveness, and therefore we have to get better at engaging, even in families where they are together, how many people are distracted from each other because of the devices that we have today and whatever may be. The sanctity of human life, we discussed at length the concept in Lesson 3 in the context of physician-assisted suicide, murder, abortions, and things of that nature. The ethics of the market and the public square. We live in a capitalist country, but we have to know that we have to care for those people that need our help. And as we mentioned, the concept of the Torah's message has to be heard of ethics and values even in the public square. Even more so when we come to objectivity of moral values, knowing that moral values are absolute. It's not based to change. We live in an era where it's live and let live, so to speak. And therefore we don't care what let this person do what that person wants and that person what that person wants. But we have to remember that these are absolute moral values that God has given us, the seven Noahide laws. And these are principles that underline every aspect of our life which can eventually make this world in a better place for every person. Some people may argue that we can manage to hold on to these, these um, Judaic Moral values, but what will happen? It's not gonna work for long. Who's gonna to listen to you? Okay, today you teach it, tomorrow you don't. What has it happened? So look at text number ten. The moral principles of Western civilization are in fact all derived from the traditions rooted in scripture, have vital meaning only in the context of that tradition. The attempt in recent decades by secularist thinkers to disengage these values from the religious context. And the assurance that they can live a life of their own in a humanistic ethic has resulted in what one writer calls a cut flower culture. Cut flowers retain their original beauty and fragrance, but only so long as they retain the vitality that have drawn from their now severed roots. After that is exhausted, they weather and die, so with freedom, brotherhood, justice, and personal dignity... The values that form the moral foundations of our civilization without the life-giving power of the faith of which has sprung, they possess neither meaning nor vitality. Morality under, under, ungrounded in God, indeed is a house built upon sand, unable to stand up against the vagaries of impulse and the brutal pressures of the power of self-interest. Going back to your question they you asked before, who decides what family values are? There are many different things that people want to instill. You ever heard this humanistic ethereal, nature, loving trees, all these wonderful things. And say, what do I need God for? What do I need Torah for? Why do I need Judaism to teach me what it means to be moral? I'm human, humanistic. There's a whole movement out there called humanistic movement. There's humanistic synagogues. What does it mean? They say, we don't need God to tell me how to do it. The human being themselves will cultivate that type of level. The problem is it will be like a cut flower. Today it's blossoming, it's beautiful, it smells great. But if it's not absolute, grounded by God, it's not <coughs> eternal today. It's beautiful, tomorrow it's dried up. The same idea when we talk about when you get a question, whether it's any value, family values, godly values, whatever it may be. The Jewish voice is needed now more than ever. A steady hand in bringing back God into the concepts, into the discussion, into the values. In part of what we're teaching the human beings. You know the of the Enlightenment movement 250 years ago. Try the same thing and look what's left of them today. Nobody. Unfortunately. Any time we try to water down something and taking the God out of the godliness. Just leaving it as gefilte fish without God. You'll enjoy the gefilte fish. But it's as long as the gefilte fish stays in the system. That's all it's worth. Judaism, someone to look at it as a culture instead of, a, instead of something godly? How long do cultures last? Some 50, some 100, some 1,000. But they don't last. It's a cut flower. The same ideas we take morals and society. If we live in this era of live and let live, and unless we just think that this other person's behavior is harmful, so to speak, and we're expected to keep ourselves and our thoughts quiet, Do you know what Abraham was called? Ha'ivri. Literally translated the Hebrew. But the word Ivri also means Aver. He was on one side and everybody else was on the other side. He didn't go with the trend. He didn't go because it was popular. It's a very famous saying, just because it's popular it's not right and what's right is not popular. What was Abraham saying? Abraham taught the world that we have to teach what is right regardless if it's popular or not. We have to be ambassadors of light, ambassadors of truth. The seven Noahide laws and its values should be taught to all our non-Jewish acquaintances and it is our duty to share with them the beauty of this absolutism in them. They're never changing and they're ever enlightening. And when we know that we can impress our, our friends and our co-workers, our family, whoever it may be, that they know this knowledge, it's an obligation that we share with them this knowledge. So to conclude today's course, we will conclude and close with the following statement, a little provocative, if I may say so. Text number 11, page 200. Norman Cantor is a well-known medievalist who has written, I am told, some excellent studies in this field. Now he has branched out to write a general history of the Jews. Cantor makes no bones about the fact that he's out to debunk or as he more fashionably puts it, to deconstruct his predecessors and present what he seems to think as a number of original theses. As it happens, however, nearly all of these have been advanced long before and by writers from Apion the 1st century to Arnold Tunneby in the 20th, not known for their friendliness towards Jews. These theses may be summarized as follows. And he says as follows. Jewish history is now coming to an end and the Jews are fated to vanish through assimilation and into marriage, not only in the Diaspora, but in Israel too, where, Judeo, where a new Judeo-Arab near-eastern elite will emerge in the next century. This thought is nothing to get upset about, for the Jews have fulfilled their role in history and pragmatically they're no longer very much needed in a distinct race. And other people also write the same. Cantor doesn't bemoan his his prospect and his view The Jews have done their job, and now we can go. To which the three great religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, two of them dominate the world numerically, and therefore, he says, historically, maybe we're not here. And therefore, he says, maybe Jews are no longer needed. The question that I have for you, and you can see it in exercise 6.3, Will the world suffer a loss of Jews as as an identifiable group in history were to be assimilated into oblivion? Is there an idea from this course that you would use to answer this question? Anybody? Huh? Yeah, I think we're very unique. Okay. Let's start with the fact that all the gifts that we give in the world, that Judaism shared with the world... And the world still waits the gifts are not a question of just start with today, they're linear. They're not cyclical. They keep on giving. And therefore the Jews are always needed to be able to give that gift.: So let me share with you an interesting story. If the world is, will the world suffer, say so here's oops, what I? Do. So here is a story to bring this story to reality, this answer to reality. And the story goes as follows about a rabbi, I actually know who the rabbi was, who traveled would travel to Russia shortly after the fall of the Soviet Union, trying to help revive the Soviet Union at the time. And now, unfortunately, with the newfound freedom of the former Soviet Union, not only was it good for the Jews, but it was also brought out anti-Semitism a little more as well, because now they had the choice that they could say some things that they didn't say before. So one day, a Jewish woman comes over and tells her rabbi that her life—that she conce- all her life she concealed her Jewishness, all her life she never said who she was—and this was the first time she hears her neighbors murmuring and saying, "Jid, jid, jid, jid." You know, what should she do? The rabbi thought for a moment. "Jid" means "yid," like Jew, like you know, talking about her. The rabbi thought for a moment and he tells the woman, "You know, it's interesting." I walk the same streets like you, and if I wouldn't have known that you're Jewish, I wouldn't even say anything about you, that you. I wouldn't even know you're Jewish. And I dress with my black hat, my long coat. I look like a Jew. And still I don't hear anybody saying anything towards me. Nobody calls me any names. So the woman thinks and says, You're right. Why is that so? And the woman answers and says, you know why I think it is? Because when they call me Jid, I look at it as an insult. When they call you Jid, you look at it as a compliment. So why should they do call you Jid? We have to remember that being Jewish is nothing to be ashamed of. It's what to be proud of. We have to look at it as a compliment. And it doesn't mean that we have to denigrate other people or, or uh, the beauty of other cultures, but we have to take pride in who ours is. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says that once when he went with his wife to Israel and they were in Eilat and they're looking at the different places and the tour guide's asking him, oh, where are you from? So he goes, oh, we're, e- we're from England. He says, oh, in England, it's so beautiful, the palace and this and that going on about the beauty of England. But Rabbi Jonathan Sachs turns to the tour guide and says, aval zesh but this is ours. Because that's all beautiful, but this is ours. We have to be proud of who we are and something that we have and never to feel bad about who we are. And the more we have Jewish pride, the more proud of who we are, us Jews will never be gone into oblivion. We'll always have what to give the world around us. Just one last story to finish off today. And I think a powerful story indeed. In 1958, the rabbi moves into Kew Garden Hills. This is special for you from Queens. <laughs> okay? Into the Kew Garden Hills neighborhood of Queens. And at that time, a bearded Jew in that, uh, in that neighborhood today, it's all full of bearded Jews, but it, it was quite exquisite to say that, or exotic. An exotic feature at the time, in an eyes community. Yet he opened up a shul, and slowly but surely people began to trickle in. And the first time he was there, he celebrated, he opened up his Seder for the community to have people, invited people to the Seder. And the rabbi was sitting there, and next to the rabbi and his wife was a little carriage. And in it was that little child sleeping deep in the sleep, the little baby daughter. And in the middle of the Seder, the baby began to cry. The rabbi got up from during, paused the Seder, apologized went into the other room, took the baby, trying to singing the baby a lullaby in Yiddish, in the language that this young man still did not understand who came to the Seder, and until he put the baby to sleep. Intrigued, the young man began to ask the rabbi and his wife where they were from. He discovered that they were from Warsaw. They were married just before the break of the war. During the war, he ended up in one concentration camp and she ended up in another. And they were able to reunite after the war. During the war, while he was slaving away in the concentration camp, she was used for different tests that the Nazis would do on young girls. And unfortunately, even though miraculously after the war they survived, she was not able to have children because of the experiments that were done to her. But they never gave up hope. They tried all kinds of treatments. Ten years later after the war, they gave birth to their daughter. This was the child that the rabbi was holding in his arms at the Seder. The young man was so inspired by the rabbi and his wife and eventually chose to live a life according to Torah and Judaism. And later on he explains what this young man who was watching his, the rabbi and his wife with the little child, what inspired him, what changed him, that all of a sudden he said, I want to also do this. And he says... It was the rabbi who survived the ghetto, survived Treblinka, his wife who went through all this different hell on earth. And what was he singing to his child at the Seder night? Oh yes, it is good to say How great it is to be a Jew. How great it is to be a Jew. There's a story of once a fellow complained to the rebbe. That his children are disinterested in Judaism and while he's talking to the Rebbe he's telling the Rebbe how difficult it is to be a Jew so the Rebbe looks at him and says now you know why your kids are not interested if you sit all day and saying it's difficult nobody wants to be part of a difficult task but if you look at Judaism as beautiful as a compliment as the beauty of what Judaism has to offer There's nothing quite like home. Our heritage, our Judaism, what it contributed to the world, what it gives to Judaism, when we take the Torah and we talk about the Torah lovingly, talk about the Torah cherishingly, and teaching the world of the Torah, automatically then ultimately not only will we enjoy it, not only will our children enjoy it, but we'll also be able to teach the world the beauty that Judaism has and ultimately affect the world. As Maimonides concludes his book, saying that eventually our goal and task is, in text number 12, I will then purify the speech of all people so that they will call about the name of God and serve him with one purpose. <coughs> our job in this world is to make the world identify and recognize that there is one God. And then the world will come to its perfect perfection as what is needed in the time of the coming of Mashiach. may it be now. Amen. Amen. I'm just going to go to the trailer for the next course.
1: Whoops.
2: These really well-known stories are really not known at all. The five books of Moses contain hundreds of laws, as well as dozens of stories. But these are no ordinary tales. They are perhaps the most misunderstood narratives in existence. And that's because they were written in code. That all changed in the 13th century, when the mystical teaching of the Book of Splendor, also known as the Zohar, burst onto the scene. Exposing cosmic truths concealed just beneath the surface of the Torah's tales. Cryptic and misunderstood narratives were decoded, clarifying centuries of misconceptions, as well as unlocking the Torah's deepest treasures of revolutionary wisdom and timeless relevance. Ready to uncover the secrets?
0: There you go. That's coming in May. Until then, don't forget, Purim is next Tuesday night. So if you still have, I mean, you should have hopefully, like, um, what do they call it? You know, missing me on Tuesday nights, you can still see me next Tuesday night. That's for Purim, and then right after that is Pesach. Okay. Rabbi, Any questions? Yes, I a Go problem ahead. With, a problem I, or a question? I
2: have a problem with understanding blasphemy. Okay. I don't understand why it's so important to Hashem.